Welcome to the ZMM podcast. The following Dharma talk was given by guest teacher Pema Kondro following a retreat presented over Zoom in January 2021. Pema Kondro is a scholar and teacher of Tibetan Buddhism. She is the founder of the nonprofit organization Ngakpa International and oversees its projects, the Dakini Mountain Retreat Center, the Buddhist Studies Institute, and the Yogic Medicine Institute, as well as Ngakpa House a charity which supports the education of children and elders in the Himalayas. Pema Khandra's academic work specializes in the history of Jogchen, as well as the culture and literature of non-celibate Tibetan yogis. Khandra Rinpoche is an authorized lama and lineage holder of both the Nyingma and Kagyu lineages, and one of the few Westerners recognized and enthroned as a tolku, a Buddhist leader who carries on the lineage of a predecessor. We hope you enjoy this talk on courage, perseverance, and authentic practice. True words for seekers studying in any tradition. To find out more about Rinpoche or her works, you can visit pemacondro.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It is an honor to be here with you today. I am Pema Kondro. I am a Tibetan Buddhist Lama and holder of the Nyingma and Kagyu lineages, and in particular of Dzogchen Ningtik, the heart essence of Dzogchen. I'm also a, a scholar of Buddhism, and this teaching today will have some elements of both of those perspectives. So this teaching will be um, entitled Carrying Sorrow Onto the Path, and it is really given as hard advice for enduring hardships. I know that there are many times we have to make the choice whether we should endure or change the situation change our circumstances, put up boundaries, build walls, build bridges, create an exit, whatever it might take to no longer have to be in that hardship. And those times where our agency is still in question and we can make a difference are for another day's teaching. Today I want to teach for the times that we need to endure the hardships, that we don't have the choice or opportunity or option or freedom to change the circumstance or get out. And instead, we are left in that long night of burying the difficulties. Sometimes it happens like this, that It is just hard and will get harder. And there is no end in sight. Or that when an end comes, further obstacles come. It's like that sometimes. Sometimes at the end of those obstacles, even more obstacles come. And so for those times, I would like to share a teaching on the life of Yeshit Sogyal, the female bodhisattva of Tibet. 
She was a ninth century figure, and I will be teaching from her Rangnam, which is the autobiography, the self-tale that she told to her consort, who then wrote it down and reincarnated centuries later and put it on paper again in the 17th century. And this biography actually emerged in Tibet in that time in the 17th century when it was a time of incredible hardships and international power struggles and violence. It was a story that needed to be told and was heard in times where hardships were abundant and safety and ease were far away. And so I want to honor that these teachings will not apply to the situation necessarily where we have the choice to get out. Maybe they could even be confusing for those situations. But they are extremely helpful for the times where we just simply must endure where the question of resilience or not is still yet to be seen. And I will give this teaching in five parts, the four pieces of advice given to Yeshitsa Gyal by her teacher. And finally, the story of the night of her awakening, which is so important because we're so familiar with the story of the Buddha's night of awakening and it's wonderful to hear that story of a female yogini. During COVID, there have been and continue to be a lot of people who are in this situation where endurance is the only option. Whether they are a single mother who doesn't have help and has to care for their children while somehow finding time to work from home at the same time, and maybe also caring for family members or women in homes where there is abuse and there is a lockdown and there's no place to get out, no place to get out to. There are so many circumstances I can imagine right now where endurance and how we endure, how the mind can make it through these times matters. And so I want to dedicate the teaching today to all of them, all those ones to whom this story will resonate and who could apply the teaching. May you know this is how it is sometimes and that you are not alone. And even when you don't have the agency to change the outside circumstances, you don't have the choice or an option there is still some freedom to be had in mind. And so with that, I will begin today's talk, which is carrying sorrow onto the path. Yeshit Sogyal was a princess. She was born to a noble family and eventually given as, a, as an offering to the king of Tibet at that time to become one of his wives. 
And in that process, there was a power struggle. There were lots of power struggles at this time between um, different factions and clans vying for authority and land and resources and power. And she was kidnapped and beaten very badly and tried to escape and couldn't, but ended up being the uh, consort of the king. However, when she arrived there, she arrived at the same time around that um, the king's own teacher, Padmasambhava, the yogi from India who would later be famed for converting all of Tibet to become a Buddhist country, he had arrived and he saw Yeshit Sogyal and the king had made tremendous offerings to his teacher, but the teacher said, the only thing I want is that um, woman to become my disciple. And so she, instead of becoming the wife to the king, she followed on a long journey. She followed Padmasambhava and became his disciple, later his consort, and later the teacher that wrote down all of his teachings. And because of that, they persisted and remained in Tibet. Her life was one that saw much hardship. She was assaulted numerous times. She was poisoned by some other jealous queens. She was raped at one point. She was mugged. Her life was not an easy life. In fact, it was really quite difficult. And so this is why her teacher's advice to her is so stunning. One reason why. She didn't have a very easy life. But she gained this opportunity, this sublime opportunity, one that would make history and really become the story of the first Tibetan on Tibetan soil to attain full realization. So she attained this opportunity and became the disciple of Padmasambhava, who trained her in the Buddhist teachings, in the philosophy and practice, and all the aspects from the sutras to Tantra and Dzogchen. She trained intensively and received them all and also wrote them down. She had an excellent memory. And every teaching that was given, she wrote. When it was time for her to go into intensive training, she went into a cycle of practices called the Eight Austerities. And to accomplish this, she went on retreat on a glacier high in the Himalayas. One of the fascinating things about Tibet is the landscape. It's a landscape that goes up so high and then down, up and then down. The vertical heights of the mountains and then the valleys and another mountain and then the valleys. And therefore, to travel from one place to another, even as the crow flies, if it's only a few miles, 
one might have to traverse all the way up to 11,000 feet and then back down to get to that place. And it may take a week or weeks. And so to go into isolated practice on top of a high mountain, on a glacier, is really to say that she went into a place of extreme isolation where even if she needed to call for help, no one would hear her cry. But at first she went with someone else. Um, A companion traveled with her and they were going to practice on the glacier together. But after a year, this companion felt it was too cold and too difficult and left. And so she ended up practicing there by herself, doing these austerities. At one point, there were blisters all over her body. At another point, she couldn't even stand on her legs. There was one phase where she couldn't even hold her head up during the meditation anymore. But there is this practice that Buttons do related to these austerities where one is training the mind through these extreme circumstances. And so the goal is to maintain the practice no matter what arises, no matter what obstacles come. And so even through all these physical hardships, she maintained her practice and she continued persevering. But there was one time where she felt that she might die. In Tibetan yoga, there are these practices to heat the body so that even if someone is in the snow, or in this case on the glacier on purpose, then they use their contemplative virtuoso to resolve the problem and protect their body by creating inner heat with these breathing practices, these inner yogas. And so throughout this whole time, she was using and applying the practices that had been given to her to stay warm, to survive, to extract a nourishment, from very little food she had, and then eventually to fast for a year. And those practices worked. They helped her for the first couple of years. But then in the third year, she started to lose heart and with it lose her skill in the practice and doubts filled her mind as we would expect in such a horrible circumstance as this. And she grew so weary that she called out in song to Padmasambhava, her teacher, crying out for him to come and help her. And then, whether by dream or mystic vision, or some kind of supernatural power, Padmasambhava, her teacher, appeared in front of her and gave her these pieces of advice. In this case, it was a situation where her austerities were chosen. 
she chose to take them on in order to tame her mind, to train her mind, to accelerate the training of her mind. However, for all the austerities that life gives us, these instructions can also be so easily applied. He gave her four instructions. The first thing he said is, now is the time to take joy and sorrow onto the path. Turn whatever suffering arises into the path and be less desirous of an easy life. Now is the time to take joy and sorrow onto the path. Turn whatever suffering arises into the path and be less desirous of an easy life. This is a phrase. It's used in numerous, maybe hundreds, of Tibetan prayers, these liturgies. Take joy and sorrow onto the path. And perhaps this is its origin, I don't know it. When was it first spoken? The phrase here is Nyamsulan in Tibetan language. Nyam, like experience. Su, on, lam or len, depending on how it's said, to the path. Receiving it onto the path. Taking it onto the path. And it refers to the ability of mind to take our experience and make use of it to train, to see into the nature of reality, to clarify what we are. It refers to this power that mind has in extreme hardship. It's there, it's more available in hardship in some way because all the petty concerns are naturally silenced. We can see that when we lose a loved one. All those little squabbles. Or even the little stresses that we carry around from day to day. So many of them fall silent in the face of that mountain of grief. And in the same way, in the face of our hardships, there is also a silence that opens a space. It's a space to do a certain kind of work of transforming the mind. There is one prayer called Carrying Joy and Sorrow Onto the Path, and I always teach it when I teach the life of Yeshet Sogyal. It says, if suffering comes, use the opportunity to take on the burden of everyone's suffering. May an ocean of suffering be emptied. It points to a Buddhist method for dealing with suffering that we open to also feel other people's suffering. And we do it through empathy. We imagine other people in the situation just like ours. The other mothers and daughters, sons and fathers, brothers and friends, the people who also are facing the same loss, we connect into their suffering as well as our own. And this, of course, is a practice 
of the altruistic enlightened intent where we open to feel other suffering and we wish that all this suffering would be cleared in concert with our own. We wish or dedicate that our suffering would clear the suffering for all. If suffering comes, appreciate the opportunity to take on the burden of everyone's suffering. May an ocean of suffering be emptied. It's so counterintuitive. We would think that in our greatest hardship to think about other people's sorrow too, that it would make it too much. It's already too much. There's something that happens by the power of our interdependence with beings and this being actually our true identity. By the power of the open-hearted presence that this requires. There is some sense in which this practice can give great relief. And carrying joy and sorrow onto the path, the song says, if sickness comes, Take this opportunity to exhaust the lifetimes of karma. May the sickness of all beings be completely cleared away. It's almost painful to say this in the midst of so much sickness, but it's a kind of poetic pain, I think, that as we experience illness, that we would also remember everyone else who is ill, And realize that not only do we have the sickness of this moment to burn off now, but also the lifetimes of karma that are behind all experiences. And we dedicate that this sickness would clear that karma for ourselves and all those who are sick. It's a fascinating thing about the attitude towards karma in Tibetan Buddhism and in so many Buddhist traditions, there are a lot of different ways that the subject of karma is addressed. One ultimately that defies our stereotype is that idea that karma is somehow a fate that we can't help ourselves. It's just going to happen. It's like a bill that's coming due. Actually, in Buddhist philosophy, this plays out quite the opposite way, that because of cause and effect, we can take positive actions. We can change our future. We can change the situations. And so in that sense, it is actually an emphasis on the power of our actions to shape our lives. It is an agency rather than a fate that comes to us. But there are times like this that I described where the teachings on karma actually are treated another way. They're addressed as this kind of acceptance of a circumstance that actually may be quite needed by us. When it's time to just endure, it does help to let go of the resistance Do you see this as it is and just ride through it? Sometimes that's what we can do. And so in order to accumulate positive 
momentum, merit, in order to free the mind in that circumstance, we realize, well, this is a way to pay off negative karma. And we hear all the time, this is a, from this from Tibetans. I remember once a friend who had a terrible stomach ache. We were together in this valley in Tibet and I was eating and he was not. And I said, what? what's wrong? Why aren't you eating? <laughs> and he said, oh, I have this terrible stomach ache. And I said, well, oh, no, that's so terrible. Maybe we should stop. Maybe we should go to the doctor. But how are we going to go to a doctor? It would have taken us a week from where we were to get anywhere. And he said, oh, don't worry. I'm using this to pay off my negative karma. That's a profound topic. But I'll leave it there just as a mere suggestion that Acceptance of a negative situation sometimes can be used and we dedicate it to clear whatever negativity from our past there was. And that through that intention, there's some extra courage and resilience that's awakened. And so this song says, if death comes, appreciate the opportunity to die in the realization of the true nature of mind. May this cut death at its very root. If long life comes, appreciate this as the opportunity to accumulate merit. May the benefit for ourselves and others be accomplished. And so this is the prayer, carrying joy and sorrow onto the path. And it's the first piece of advice that Padmasambhava gives Yeshit Sogyal. Now is the time to employ both joy and sorrow as the path. Whatever suffering comes, take it onto the path. If we are to think a little bit on the last part, it seems a little bit outrageous. He says, be less desirous of an easy life. To someone who has not had an easy life, to someone who was in incredible pain and about to die. It's quite stern advice to give. But I remember this prayer all the time during difficult circumstances, and it relaxes me so much to recognize that sometimes it's not easy. And this is our practice. This is our training. This is our teacher and to let go of the idea that it should be any other way, but instead to radically accept it and show up present to how it is. The second piece of advice of the four he gives her, he says, meditate upon impermanence. Pondering the pain of the lower realms, drop your ambitions, faithful consort. Usually when we think of meditating upon impermanence in Tibetan Buddhism, it's a kind of um, dreadful news. <laughs> Actually, in the outer preliminaries, as we call them, there is this whole practice of meditating on every possible example of impermanence that there is. And this forms the first part of a study of Buddhist Tantra in Tibet. And it is so uh, exhaustive that I used to get bored, if I admit, in the um, 
Shedra, the Buddhist Philosophical College, whenever we would go through this part. The seasons are impermanent. Fall changes into spring, or fall changes into winter. Winter changes into spring. Spring changes into summer. Morning changes into afternoon. Afternoon changes into the evening. Evening changes into night. Night changes again into the dawn. And on and on and on, every possible example. Kings one day die or fall from their throne. Everything you could think of over and over again. Actually, I was just teaching a similar text, the same type of text last year before the pandemic. For the whole year in our open teaching, the Buddhist philosophy class that I give in the public, I was teaching Excellent Path to Enlightenment, and it starts it's by Longchenpa. It starts with this meditation on impermanence one by one and one. And so we did that month after month after month. And we finally finished, and the pandemic was announced within days. And society closed down. And by the time we gathered again, we were all in lockdown. And it was very clear that things are impermanent. It's usually like this that we learn impermanence. The losses, the change, the ruptures. And we need to know so we can accept it and work with life as it is rather than as we wish it to be. So that we can be prepared be present. But there's another way impermanence can be taught as well as a liberating factor to know that whatever arises, whatever experience, it has its peak and then it dissipates. Actually, to contemplate impermanence in the midst of hardship can be a huge relief. This is here, it's for a time. But everything, from the seasons to the cycles of the day, even for kings and rulers, rich or poor, everything changes. And to know we will just be here for a time is a huge relief. As we remember, every experience arises, has a peak, and then dissipates. Knowing this, we can bear anything. His third instruction, Padmasambhava, to Yeshe really can only be given after this impermanence teaching because it's that sense of the freedom of impermanence that allows us to do deep inner work, to see our own mind, to see the dense private world of our own fantasies about who we are and how life is, to look into that, to peer into mind and not get buried by it or too dissuaded by it or lose heart. Well, it, it does require some understanding of impermanence and the emptiness that that leads us to to be in the moment, present, one breath at a time, 
but so much of what we need to make it through these tough times. But to be in the present moment means to let go of the one before. To be present is a kind of radical rupture from what was before. And so we have to know impermanence even to just get present again, just to make our way through mind. And that can be incredibly freeing when the previous moment was so difficult. And to know then one breath at a time that we will make it through. But it also makes possible to receive this third instruction, a radical instruction that Padmasambhava gave to Yeshitsokya on that glacier. He says, Now is the time to reveal your hidden faults. Don't hide your latent vices. Lay bare your inadequacies. The third instruction, now is the time to reveal your hidden faults. Do not hide your latent vices. Lay bare your inadequacies. How do we get past self-deception? This mind that we live in all the time. It's so overwhelming. It's so compelling. It's so total so thick with meaning and not all of it can we see in fact most of it we do not even our own motives we don't always know even the most striking experiences to us our traumas our heartbreaks may be so present with us that we don't even see them oh the wonders and horrors of the unconscious mind. Long before Freud and Western European scholars started to theorize about the unconscious mind, Buddhist philosophers in India staked out their own paradigms for what this is. How does it work? What's there? What causes it? When do those seeds lying dormant under the soil of what is known suddenly sprout and come live and take over our lives? To work with mind is to enter an uncharted territory, perhaps the last uncharted territory since we've spread all over the globe. That of our own mind, that of mind, To work with our mind is to see something surprising, treacherous, beautiful, ugly, fearsome, difficult. And it has to be seen. It has to be seen. It will be seen. As soon as we quiet down, the mind goes on display and it shows us. And in those moments in between when facing hardships, it's there as that voice of rumination and wonder of why am I in this situation and who am I and what does this mean? At that point, it's really quite important that we 
let go of all deception, self-deception and the deceptions about the nature of reality that we have fallen under, like falling under a bad spell. And how do we do that? I love this third piece of advice because it signals the kind of vigorous honesty that's actually required to develop spiritual maturity. To see ourselves, to see our world as it is. It's beautiful, it's sweet, it's poetic, and it also lays bare our hidden faults. How do we do this? In an ordinary way, we can do it by telling the whole truth about ourselves to someone. Actually, a a year ago, a year and a half ago, I guess, I had this idea. I pitched it to the editor at Lions Roar with Friends, and I said, look, let's have an all-women's issue at the editor at Buddha Dharma. And I was feeling, I was in a bold mood. I think I might have been drinking coffee that day or something. Let's have an all-women's issue. It's only about Buddhist women. And not that Buddhist men aren't important, but we're just missing so many of the histories of Buddhist women. There's just a fraction of those histories. And as a scholar, it's so frustrating. We want to bring forward the story of Buddhist women from the past, but it's largely missing. And it's not there in the text. Just a fraction of these texts are devoted to Buddhist women's lives because of the conventions of the society at that time. And I was thinking, but now there's Buddhist women now teaching. We can have a story of their lives. And so I had this idea and we came up with this panel that um, I wanted to interview other Buddhist women teachers and ask them about what was it? What was like the key advice that helped them in their life as a, as a female leader, as a Buddhist leader, as a person, as a practitioner? And so I had all these questions. And so I asked them, like, if you could give one piece of advice, just one, to a young Buddhist teacher or to yourself when you were a young teacher, what would you say? And I had my answer ready. I knew what I would say. But actually, someone else answered it for me. And I was totally stunned. The answer was, tell the whole truth of your life to someone. And weirdly, she said it almost exactly like that. This was Mayoki Kane Barrett. And... This advice is so important that we are able to reveal our hidden faults, not hide our latent vices, that we lay bare our inadequacies, and we get used to what we are, that we get comfortable showing what we are, the whole thing, the whole story of samsara and nirvana as it plays out as our innate goodness, our Buddha nature, as these confusions that fill up the skies of mind. We need to get used to seeing it, sharing it, owning it, letting it go, so that we can get beyond our self-deception. There's already so much of mind we do not see, that we do not know, 
what we can see, we should see. It's something I've really loved about my own teachers. Their absolute humanity and lack of pretense. It's such a special quality. And especially since from the point of view of Dzogchen, it says that samsara, our cycles of suffering, come about because we're constantly elaborating upon reality, elaborating unconsciously about what we are, about how things are, that it's elaborations, toxic elaborations, because we don't know how to sit with what is. And so that intimacy, that journey of intimacy with our own mind will require our ability to stare right into the mind, to see what it is, to see it unflinchingly and let it go. Through teachings on emptiness and impermanence, we can see it and let it go. I think in hardships, this could actually be quite a help to us. I remember when I was dying of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and there was this period of time where I was in this really raw place that illness can put us in. And it's similar really to how pure meditation is, where we can't be this person that we're usually pretending to be all day. That self, the fictive self that we live trapped inside and try to be that good self. I couldn't perform the self. I couldn't perform anything. But just through the debilitation of my whole body, there was just this kind of natural space of just being exactly as I was. And as things unfolded, because this is how it is when we're ill, when we're so ill and we cannot control the circumstances or manage people's interrelationships anymore, where some kind of family drama happened around me, some family politics, and I could do nothing. There was no way to mitigate it or lessen it. I was so weak and in so much pain. All I could do was notice that for myself that, yes, this situation was horrible. It was heinous. It was dark. It was difficult, but also, too, my impulse to fix things was coming up, and that was my own problem. And that's something lovely and painful about hardship, is how it shows us our mind. It shows us our faults and flaws, and we need to see them so we can train, so we can take this onto the path. Is Do you share this? Does anyone share this with me, the desire to fix and make it all okay? Or maybe it's a sense of rage or frustration when we are losing control. Maybe it's a sense of withdrawal and shutting down. We are being shown our own mind and that we do have freedom to change. Through awareness, through just the revelation, through seeing it as it is, through seeing mind in these times, that revelation is what we do to carry it onto the path, to own the toxic muck that might be there and the terrible problems that actually were brewing inside 
those triggers are a rich source of information. And through meditation, we learn to let them arise and let them go. And that bearing witness is cleansing, as it promises in the Bhavana Krama. The more we just let mind arise and let it go, rather than reifying, then the less those afflictions will arise, the less power they will have. But there's some seeing that happens in that process, and we should reveal our hidden faults in that case and let it be seen. This, too, is our training. This, too, is our teacher. The fourth instruction he gave Yeshit Sogyal is expose your secret self and take courage. One of her problems was pride. This was an obstacle in her life. She writes that she's given instructions about this many, many times. And here, too, we can see in his instructions to her that she's being taught to work with her own pride. And in the last instruction that he gives her, he tells her, expose the secret self and take courage. We are so exposed and so vulnerable at times. We are so fragile. And this is okay. This is something sad and beautiful. You know, my favorite Dharma teaching is actually, um, it started like this. It said, this is the favorite Dharma teaching I've ever heard. And I remember it all the time. The first line was, you will never have it all together. <laughs> and when I heard it, I, I loved this. And I thought, wow, that should be everyone's first Dharma teaching. That should be our first teaching. <laughs> you will never have it all together. What, what does that elicit in us to think like this? The sense of surrender, letting go of our obsession for control, and being just right where we really are just now. The only place that peace of mind ever was to be found. This is where we can find our courage. Just to be simple and here. I want to finish by contemplating the night of Yeshitsogyal's awakening. Just like the story of the life of the Buddha, in the night of her awakening, she goes to go into retreat. This is many years later after having received the advice that we overheard today. She went to go into solitary retreat again. And she had this terrible time because once she sat down, all of these obstacles, both inner and outer, manifested. But she had, like the Buddha, and following in the Buddha's footsteps as we all hope to do, she sat and resolved, I will not move from this place until I attain the nature of the mind. And so she sat to practice, and all kinds of horrible things started to happen that night. She was exhausting a lot of karma. And um, it's so drastic. I want to read part of it so that we can close with this. She says, 
Another day I was besieged by phantom herds of ferocious beasts. Tigers, leopards, bears, yetis, and other carnivores appeared, roaring above, roaring outside the cave entrance. From my right and from my left, animals attacked, attacking me from every direction and howling in their various styles, their mouths gaping ravenously snarling in rage, beating their tails, their paws scratching at me, shaking their bodies. From the assurance I had gained from abandoning attachment to the body, a compassion arose for all these beasts and they vanished. But then leaving me with no respite, a vast army of billions of different insects and worms led by spiders, scorpions, and snakes inundated the area around me Some slipped through my sensory doors, some bit me, some stung me, some scratched me, some climbed over me, some jumped on me, some fought each other, some ate each other and left piles of carcasses around me, and there was no trick that these insects did not use to frighten and torment me. I found a little pity in my heart, but the insects became increasingly terrifying and loathsome. But I thought to myself, why should I now be afraid of illusory tricks? Why should I now be afraid of karmic manifestations? With this thought, I regained my assurance and I sang, All phenomena are only tricks of the mind. I see nothing to fear in inner space. This is how we carry sorrow onto the path, to know that ultimately we may not be able to change our circumstance. Sometimes we may not be able to get out or end it. Sometimes we must just endure. And in those times, we still have the freedom of mind to do the inner work, even if we're exhausted and have only a few minutes to reflect a day, if that, that we could see this is the time to make friends with our mind, to forge a way to work with our own mind so that we too can say this. I see nothing to fear in inner space. I dedicate the merit of this practice to all those who call for help and no one comes. May they still exercise the one freedom we always have remaining, and that is the freedom of our mind. May all beings be freed from suffering and the cause of suffering. May all beings experience joy and its true cause. May the fruit of our practice and all of our activities be to accomplish the highest benefit for all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere experience the joy, clarity, dignity, and fearlessness of peace. May all beings everywhere find peace. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page.
or scroll down and click on Retreats.